Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Esther chapter 3. And I think we have time here this morning. So while you're turning, I'm going to just do a little bit of trivia for you. And out of the story of Esther comes uh, the Jewish festival, which they celebrate even to today, the celebration of Purim. Uh, the word comes from the word pur, which means casting of lots. And uh, it goes back to when um, Haman cast the lots to decide what day they were going to destroy all the Jews on. And uh, that was a common practice back in those days, uh, was to cast lots to make decisions. And the idea was that uh, the god or the gods would intervene and uh, give direction through the casting of lots. And so when Haman cast lots, it fell on the 14th day of Adar, and they followed the lunar calendar, so the day varies from year to year. Um, and just as our Easter calendar is based on the lunar calendar, varies from year to year uh, when it falls. And so the 14th day of Adar falls in the late February or early March period. And uh, Mordecai, after God had saved them, you go to Esther chapter 9, uh, he says that uh, he wrote that the Jews were to observe the 14th, 15th day of Adar as days of feasting and joy where they were to give presents, to food to each other, gifts to the poor, and uh, that uh, if this would be done from generation to generation for all time. They were never to forget this, that uh, every family was to celebrate in this way. And uh, the Jews made the promise back then that they would always celebrate this feast. And they still, to today, thousands of years later, they still give gifts of food and drink to each other. Uh, they give gifts to the poor. Uh, they have a feasting with special foods. Uh, during that feast, they read the book of Esther. And they blot out the name of Haman as they read the book of Esther. And so when the father or whoever is reading the book, whenever they come to the word Haman in the book, and they know it so well, they make all sorts of noise. Yell, clash things together, so you can't hear the word Haman being spoken. Uh, the other things that they'll do is they will uh, write his name on two rocks and they bash them together until his name is blotted out. Uh, they also, some will write his name on the soles of their feet, so they walk on his name and dishonor the name of Haman. Sometimes they make an effigy of Haman and they burn it. And so all different ways of blotting out the name of Haman. It's a time of prayers, time of drinking wine, wearing masks and costumes. Uh, they have plays and special songs. And so it's just a fun time celebrating God's uh, saving them as a nation back then. Just a couple interesting facts. Hitler banned uh, Purim. He identified with Haman and wanted to accomplish what uh, Haman had failed to do, and that was eradicate the Jews. And so he often planned massacres to coincide with Purim. In 1942, he hanged 10 Jews to publicly avenge Haman's 10 sons. In 1943, he shot 10 Jews in order to avenge Haman's 10 sons. Joseph Stalin also planned a massacre of the Jews in 1953. And he'd already started his plan by spreading a lot of propaganda. Uh, he had arrested some, already had killed some. Uh, his plan was to um, create a whole plot that they were agitating to overthrow the government, and then he would arrest them all and kill them all. 
But on March 1st, 1953, the day of Purim on that year, he was suddenly paralyzed and died four days later. And the new Soviet leadership immediately dropped the idea of killing the Jews. So that's just some trivia uh, before we go into the message here. If you're at uh, Esther chapter 3, I'd like to start reading at verse 1. After these events, uh, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Gagite, elevating him and setting him a seat, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. When Mordecai, I'm skipping to chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one who was clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which, to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. I came across this uh, little reading a few months ago and I saved it. Have you ever thought about this? In 100 years, like in 2123, we'll all be buried with our relatives and our friends. Strangers will live in our homes we fought so hard to build, and they'll own everything that we have today. All of our possessions will be unknown and unborn, including the car we spent a fortune on and will probably be scrapped. Our descendants will hardly know who we are or were, nor will they remember us. How many of us know our grandfather's father? After we die, we'll re be remembered for a few more years. Then we're just a portrait on someone's bookshelf. And a few years later, our history, photos, and deeds disappear into history's oblivion. We won't even be memories. If we paused one day to analyze these questions, perhaps we would understand how ignorant and weak the dream to achieve it all was. 
If we could only think about this, surely our approaches, our thoughts would change. We'd be different people. Always having more, no time for what's really valuable in this life. I would change all this to live and enjoy the walks I've never taken, those hugs I didn't give, those kisses for our children and our loved ones, those jokes we didn't have time for. Those would certainly be the most beautiful moments to remember. After all, they would fill our lives with joy. And yet we waste it day after day with greed, achievements, and intolerance. End of quote. Bonnie Ware is an Australian nurse who spent years working in palliative care. And uh, there she would often hear the regrets from her patients who were dying. And she began to keep track of those regrets. And she kept uh, the, the five most common ones. And she wrote a book about it. And the number two regret was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. They wished that they'd spent less time pursuing careers, money, and possessions, more time spending, more time pursuing time with their spouse, their children, and other relationships. And as they look back at the end of their lives, they look back with regret. They wish they'd lived their lives differently. I came across a quote this past week which says, it's better to play a small role in God's story than to be the lead character in your own made-up fiction. Yet it's so easy for us to pursue being the lead character in our own made-up fiction, to focus our time on meaningless time wasters, to go through life with an inner resistance to God, to give in to our doubts, to our fears, to our desires and our addictions, to try to control and manipulate our lives to conform to that fiction that we're pursuing. Solomon did this. King Solomon did it. At the end of his life, he said, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Or as the King James Version puts it, vanity, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. So many of us can look back over our lives and we have regrets. We now realize how meaningless so many of our pursuits were. We've done things we wish we hadn't and haven't done things which we wished we had. We've said things that we wished we hadn't and we've left unsaid the things we wished we had said. We missed opportunities that we should have taken and we've taken opportunities that we shouldn't have taken. And if you yet haven't experienced this, you will. And many people ask, after what I've done and all the regrets that I have, how can God love me and accept me or use me? Now, as we look at the Bible, it has superheroes in it like Joshua and Caleb. And because of their faith and obedience, they were the only two of their generation that went into the land. Eighty-some years old when they went into the land. They didn't die in the desert like everyone else. At 85 years old, Caleb wasn't looking for a rocking chair. He said, when you portion out the land, give me this area where the giants are. At 85 years old, he wanted to go and fight some giants. You know, nothing, is, nothing bad is recorded about those two guys. They're superheroes of the faith. But the problem is, I have a hard time identifying with them. 
It's easier to identify with people like Moses, who was prone to rash actions and that he regretted afterwards, impatient and hot-tempered. When he sees injustice happening to a fellow Israelite, he strikes the Egyptian who's doing it and kills him. In a panic, he buries the body in the sand and flees into the desert, hides there for 40 years. And when God wants him to go back, he argues with God. Abraham, so fearful for his life that he's willing to compromise his values, even his wife, to save his own skin. He struggled to trust God in certain areas in his life. David had a lifelong struggle with lust, which led to an affair with a married woman, and she got pregnant and fearful of being exposed. David kills her husband. Naomi, who along with her husband decided not to trust God in a time of famine, they went to another country where they were not supposed to go, and she paid bitterly by losing her husband and her two sons there. And she changed her name to Mara, which means bitterness. Zacchaeus, whose lust for money consumed him so much that he was willing to sacrifice his relationships in pursuit for money. Jacob, the schemer, who didn't mind fudging things so that it would work in his favor. It made him wealthy. But it all caught up to him in the desert with his brother coming with an army who he believed was coming to kill him. And he's wrestling in the dark with a man who turns out to be God. Peter, big, tough Peter, he would fight to death for Jesus. And he turned out to be a wimp, and he fled into the darkness. And then there's Mordecai, the uncle of Queen Esther, whose actions got him and his entire people into trouble, put them into mortal danger. I find it much easier to identify with these people. Because in one way or the other, they represent us. They were human, totally human, in all their weaknesses, and they all lived with regrets. And the common theme with all of them was that they needed a second chance. So as we finish with the book of Esther today, I want to focus on Mordecai, the guy who blew it. We would say he's a good man. He feared God, man of faith. He adopted his cousin and raised her as his daughter in a loving home. He was devoted to her even when he lost control of the situation. He did all that he could to see to her welfare. We would just say a good, solid guy. And yet he had a flaw. He couldn't stand Haman. He hated him. Why, we're not sure. We just know that he couldn't stand him. Likely it had something to do with Haman's feelings toward the Jews. He hated the Jews. And Haman advanced in power and wealth to the point where King Xerxes put him second in command and commanded that everyone would bow to Haman. And Mordecai just could not bring himself to bow to Haman. There was nothing wrong or immoral about him bowing to Haman. It was a cultural sign of respect and submission to those in authority. And it was the king's law that everyone was to bow to Haman. But it was so repulsive to Mordecai that he was willing to risk everything in, not, in order not to bow. 
How he avoided it, we're not sure. He probably avoided settings where you would have to bow because if you're in a crowd and suddenly the whole crowd bows and you're left standing, you stand out. And Haman never caught on. But others did. And for some time, they did the right thing. They went to Mordecai and they encouraged him to comply with the king's law. And Mordecai stubbornly refused. And finally, when uh, they realized he was not going to bow, knowing that he was a Jew and knowing that Haman hated Jews, they told Haman about the Jew who wouldn't bow to him. And then they sat back to see what would happen. Haman, once he hears about it, he decides to use the occasion not to just destroy Mordecai, but to destroy all the Jews. So he tricks the king into signing an edict where all the Jews of the world were to be killed, every man, woman, and child. Now put yourself into Mordecai's shoes. Your actions have put you into a position where you're going to die. That's bad enough. But your actions have put your family into the position where they're all going to die. That's even worse. But your actions have put your entire people group into the possession where they're all going to die. All because of your own pride or whatever it was that wouldn't allow you to bow to that hateful Haman. Now how much regret did Mordecai have? Perhaps he regretted it. But we see a stubbornness here because even knowing that his actions have put his people into that place, he still refuses to bow. There's no giving in with him. Think of how the other Jews would have responded. If you were sitting here this morning knowing that you're under a death sentence, and all because of my foolish actions, what would you be thinking about me here this morning? Knowing that you, your family, everyone is going to die. I don't know what kind of pushback. We aren't told that part of the story. But I'm sure there was a lot of pushback coming to Mordecai. Mordecai, how could you? Mordecai, you are the man responsible for my family dying. Mordecai, I even hate you. I'm sure he got some of that. We can only surmise about all that, but we do know how Mordecai reacted. It says that he tore his clothes, he threw on rags of sackcloth over them, he dumped ashes over his head, and he went wailing and screaming in grief all the way across the city to the palace. He couldn't enter the palace, but he stayed outside wailing in grief, and that's culturally how they expressed their deepest grief and shame. Mordecai, the good guy, his actions have now caught up with him. And his world has crashed all down around him. He's reached the end. Well, not quite the end. He has one hope. Esther, his cousin, who's like a daughter to him, is queen. And his hope is that she, as the queen of the world's most powerful man, can sway that man to change it. Perhaps she can do something. Esther's response is one of fear. 
She doesn't have the right to approach her husband, the king. If she does so, the law says that she must die unless the king holds out the golden scepter to her. And she knows her husband. He's a man of rages who thinks nothing of killing those who are closest to him. And she hasn't seen him for a month. So they aren't exactly close. But uh, Mordecai, with everything crashing down around him, he just puts the pressure on her, telling her that she too will die if she doesn't do something. So she may as well try. And at this, the strength of Esther's character comes through. She stiffens her back, decides she's willing to die, and she puts some wisdom and sanity in the situation. And she says basically to him, get up out of your filthy ashes and do something that you should have done in the first place. Turn to the one person who can give us hope and ask for his help. The king isn't our hope, God is. No, she didn't quite say it that way. This is how she said it. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now the word pray is not used here, but within their context it was understood. The purpose of fasting was to pray. And so she says, don't eat or drink for three days. Get on your face before God and pray for me. And in those words, Esther turns Mordecai's attention back to the true answer, the true hope. To the God of second chances. The God who can deliver us from our stupidities. The God who can take bad situations and the messes we create and turn them into something good. And God did answer their prayers. He did give them another chance. He gave Esther great wisdom. He made Haman's plans to backfire. Haman intended to humiliate Mordecai. Instead, Haman was humiliated. Haman intended to uh, hang Mordecai. Instead, Haman was hanged. Haman intended to kill all the Jews and leave them with no descendants. Instead, Haman's descendants were all killed. There's a lesson in this for us. Because Mordecai is us. At times, we blow it. At times we create messes, but God isn't done with us. He's the God of the second chance. God had chosen Moses to deliver Israel. Moses totally blew that away as he murdered that Egyptian and he became a fugitive in the desert from the law for 40 years. God could have said, how stupid, Moses, I'm done with you, but he didn't. He gave Moses a refuge in the desert for 40 years, gave him a job, gave him a wife and a family, gave him a father-in-law who had, uh, was a man of great wisdom, taught him lessons about the desert that he was going to need later on as he led the Israelites into the desert, and taught him humility, and then took him back again to accomplish his purposes. Gideon. God said, I want you to deliver my people. And Gideon struggled to believe. He struggled with his faith. And he kept questioning God and asking for new signs. And God didn't slap him on the side of the head and said he graciously worked with Gideon's unbelief by giving him what he asked for to build his faith. And he destroyed a mighty army through Gideon's few men. 
David failed miserably. But he repented and God gave him his kingdom back. Peter, after having denied the Lord and fled into the darkness, he spent that night miserable and defeated. But after the resurrection, the Lord met him on the beach and gently restored him and made Peter into the leader of the early church. Naomi, who had changed her name to Mara, meaning bitterness, restored her hope, gave her a family again, and she took up her original name again, which means pleasant. God is not done with you yet. You may be sitting here this morning with regrets in your heart and plan A may be, God's plan A may be totally shot. You blew it. But God has plan a plan B for you. And if you've blown plan B, he has a plan C. And if necessary, a plan D or E and on it goes. God is the God of a second chance. You have not committed a sin too great to qualify for another chance. If anyone had been beyond chances, Manasseh, King Manasseh was the man. His father, Hezekiah, was one of Judah's godly kings. Manasseh grew up in a home where his father loved God and tried to lead his nation well. But in spite of that background, Manasseh blew it. He rejected God. And when he became king, he lived for himself and he terrorized the nation. It says that he filled Jerusalem with bloodshed from one end to the other. And God had to get his attention by sending the Assyrians against him. And they captured Manasseh and they put a hook in his nose. And they tied a rope to it and they led him back to Assyria as a captive. And for some time there, he rotted away in an Assyrian jail. But there in that jail, Manasseh turned to God for the second chance. And God gave him that second chance, and God restored him to the kingdom. And Manasseh, from then on, he lived for the Lord, became a godly king, and became the longest reigning king of the Jews. The only thing that disqualifies you from another chance is if you're dead. If you're sitting here this morning, still breathing, you qualify for another chance. But the danger is you can harden yourself to the point where you don't take those chances that God is offering. I want to say to you, if you miss out on God's second chances, it's not his fault because our Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. As the psalmist said in response to that, turn to me and have mercy on me and grant strength to me, your servant. That's the kind of God he is. The book of Micah says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. That's the kind of God we serve. And I want to add to this. We need to give each other second chances. Sometimes God offers a person a second chance, but the church is not willing to. 
And as his people, we need to be just as gracious and compassionate as God is, offering those second chances to others. You know, this morning, I believe there's many of us who are sitting here this morning and we have regrets in our lives. There's things that we wish we could go back and undo. You have your own story. How God has offered you a second chance and you took it. I wish we could hear those this morning. I want to finish just with one story. Years ago, a man came to see me and I knew who he was. I'd never met him before this, but he showed up in my office and said, can I tell you my story? And it was a sad story. He'd grown up in a very abusive home, which had impacted his life severely. Young adult, he got married, and uh, through a series of miraculous events, uh, both he and his wife had become believers. And for a time, they had pursued God. But then he became consumed with pursuing money and his business. And eventually, he turned to alcohol, and he became consumed with alcohol. And he turned into a lonely, bitter, and angry man. He himself became an abusive man. He ruined all of his friendships. He blamed himself. He was at odds with everyone around him. The community rejected him because he just fought everyone. And his marriage was almost at its end. His wife was now bitter towards him. The churches that he had been attending over the years, he'd gone to different churches. He was such a problem in those churches, they didn't want him. And one by one, they'd cast him out. He was no longer welcome. For several years, he had lived like this, drowning his anger in alcohol, lonely and defeated. But he'd reached the end of himself, and God was doing a new work in his life. And he wanted to come back to God. He wanted to have that relationship again that he'd once enjoyed with God. He wanted to come back to God's people, to have a place where he was loved and accepted. And the question as it came, it was just full of hurt and longing, but the question came with the expectation, I'm going to be rejected again. And his question to me that day was this, would God accept him back after everything that he had done? And would there be a community of believers that would take the risk and accept him and love him? And that, my answer to him that morning was, the God I serve is the God of the second chance. And here at this church, we believe in second chances and third chances. And that morning, he sat in my office and he just wept. And he gave his life back to God. And God gave him another chance. And the people of God took him in. And they loved him and they accepted him. He had a lot of rough edges that God had to knock off. But they were so patient with him. And it was just a pleasure to see him grow in the Lord. The God of the second chance, what's common to all of us sitting here this morning, is we need that kind of God. And we need that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this wonderful lesson that we see in the book of Esther. Mordecai, who messed things up to the point, uh, was disastrous, not just for him, but for his entire people group.
Yet when he turned to you, and when they turned to you, you gave them that second chance. You were so compassionate, so gracious. And we see that just faithfully displayed in our lives over and over again. And so we thank you this morning and we give you glory for it. I pray this in Jesus' name.